and welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast, where we believe that healthcare belongs to everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Vecchio, a practicing pediatric cardiologist and educator. Together, we will explore the many facets of our unique American healthcare system, its strengths, its weaknesses, and what can be done to ensure that it meets its full potential to improve our lives. On each episode, we'll invite a special guest to help us on our journey. We'll learn about the various healthcare settings that these experts come from and the remarkable work they're doing to transform America's health. We'll take the best of what they have to offer so we can all reach for a better healthcare together. So join me now in our pursuit of health. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pursuit of Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Fecky, and today we're going to enter into our second case studies from the heart episode. In this format, uh, I review a patient case, and sometimes two, as in this episode, because we find uh, the stories of patients to be very helpful as clinicians. This is how we learn. They're our best teachers, and even though we had a strong foundation, many of us in our medical education, our ongoing teachers are often our patients, and they have been for me. And I would like to share these stories with you because I think they are very uh, demonstrative and they really help us understand some of the issues that we all face. And today what I wanted to discuss was the issue of the lack of consistency in the U.S. healthcare system in terms of the quality or the standards that we see. Uh, many people refer to this in the professional writing and discussions in public health and policy as healthcare disparities. And one of the things that I noticed uh, as I came out to community settings almost 30 years ago was how varied the different levels of healthcare are uh, from county to county, region to region, state to state. And this has become even more of an issue lately, obviously with the pandemic, and something I think more and more about. It is also something that a lot of our guests on the podcast have alluded to. So I wanted to step back for a moment and have this discussion with you all about that. Now, this is a broad topic with a very complex set of causes and solutions. And I'm not trying to be an expert and provide all the information uh, on one short discussion about this, but to bring up some of the main issues and some of my thoughts so that as we go forward with the podcast and our guests, uh, we have brought this a little bit more to the surface. So um, I would like to introduce uh, this issue with you by beginning with uh, two stories, two patient stories. Uh, the first one has to do with a young uh, man, an athlete of about 14 years old or an aspiring athlete. Um, he wanted to play uh, football. He had not been on a team before. He had had a little asthma, um, but otherwise seemed to be healthy. And uh, he was seeking to get on the team and pushing you know, his family to let him play football that year. And so uh, they were looking around and they really couldn't get into the doctor's office, the main pediatrician's office, uh, quick enough for the kid. And he was very excited. So they went to an urgent care facility and had a procedure done known as a pre-participation examination or evaluation. And that's where somebody says yes or no, this person is cleared and safe to play in sports. Now, this was done at a place where they didn't really know the patient uh, very well, this young man very well. Um, 
he mentioned on the standardized form, everybody used the right forms and everything uh, in their state there, that uh, he had had some symptoms with exercise. He was feeling some chest pain, his heart racing, and sometimes hard to breathe, especially in the heat. Well, that was dismissed as just probably his asthma and uh, not looked into further um, and never looked into it through the regular physician or delved deeper into why this might be. And he went out and played uh, practice and within the first week of playing actually turned to his mother on a practice day and uh, collapsed. Um, He never uh, made it through the resuscitation despite being transported to a hospital and he did die. Uh, One thing they did know is that his heart was uh, speeding up in a tachycardia known as ventricular tachycardia ventricular fibrillation, but they never really did figure out exactly why he died that day. The next story uh, has to do with a, a boy who I met during an American Heart Walk years ago when he was a toddler. His mother was walking with me and told me the story as we marched along with everyone else. And she was very proud that he was there now at three years old. And she said, you know, they didn't think that uh, he should be born. And I said, well, please explain. And she said, well, you know, he's missing the left side of his heart, something known as hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And when I was pregnant, we went all around and most people told me to abort him because they said there was nothing really could be done. Some people said maybe transplant, and other people said we could do an operation. Eventually, I found a place in the Northeast, a big hospital, and they said they had done many of these types of surgeries. And we have gone through two of his surgeries and entering the third one soon, um, and he's doing extremely well. Uh, Later on, she told me as I cared for him as a patient of mine eventually, that uh, in the following year after his final surgery, The family had been uh, staying in their apartment on the second floor, and the father had been away. He was a truck driver, and the little boy got up at almost five years old, and he turned to his mom in the middle of the night around 4 a.m. and said, Mommy, I smell smoke. She said, You know, you're right. Get your little sister out with you. She's two years old. Uh, Knock on the floor downstairs at Mrs. Soso's door. Let her know that you smell smoke and to get everybody outside, and I'll get everybody outside from the top floor here. They all got out, and within an hour, the building had burned to the ground. Um, There was a fire. He had smelled it, and the mother turned to me and said, so who still thinks that he should not have been born? No one in that apartment. So I thought these were very telling stories. They're stories that have stuck with me for uh, some time now, and I thought they brought out the idea of healthcare disparities. And one of the definitions uh, that I like a lot about or that describes healthcare disparities well to me is from the Center uh, of Disease Control, the CDC. And um, they describe it as a preventable differences in the burden of disease, injury, violence, or opportunities to achieve optimal health that are experienced by socially disadvantaged populations. And the part that really sticks out there for me is preventable. Because after all the efforts that we do with science and research and chemotherapies for cancer and heart disease and all the money we spend on surgeries, this seems like low-hanging fruit to me, that we can make uh, the population so much healthier and so much easier by things that are preventable, such as healthcare disparities that are causing so many people to be sick or die. And here we're spending money in other places, but here right in front of us, 
something such as the inequity of care, the way it's delivered in different places, could be making a huge difference in our overall health. The other thing, the other term I want to throw out there is healthcare disparities, different than health disparities. Health disparities are how healthy people are, but healthcare is how we deliver the services to people. And some of the reasons that people are unhealthy are not just because of things intrinsic to where they live and things like that, but also due to the fact that they don't have access to healthcare through healthcare coverage, like insurance, or access to quality care consistently. So how does this all show up? Why are there differences? What, where does it end up uh, coming to, the, you know, to re- reality? In what form? Well, it shows up in our American society specifically in different communities and regionally, the environment. As I said, one county, one state, sometimes it feels like town to town, there are differences, practice to practice, in the way that care standards are uh, delivered, that not everybody has the same standard of care. That's what I've seen uh, even within New York State and the Northeast. There are uh, differences between uh, racial uh, differences in terms of the quality or the health of people based on race. And we know that's a major factor that has been discussed in the pandemic. Uh, Socioeconomic, basically what people are calling the social determinants of health. What is it about society and finances and our economy that creates differences in health. That's something that our guests have brought up, and that leads in many ways people to change their behaviors depending on their social and economic situation, which aggravates or improves health depending on the type of behavior. There's differences in gender. There's difference in religion. There's differences in educational background, and on and on the list goes. There's so many different levels of care based on these factors. And I've seen it in my own practice, in my own community, uh, even within people of color, where I see the differences in the Hispanic population versus the non-Hispanic populations. And this has been talked about and written about for years. And it just bothers me because it is something that seems so preventable, as the CDC says. And finally, people are starting to talk about it, as many of our guests are as well. So what causes some of this. Why are these differences based on these different issues? Well, this is what we're trying to talk about in the podcast in the first place. That's what we're trying to dive into, things like this. We've talked about biases, things that doctors and caretakers and maybe patients themselves bring to the table when they get together. After all, this is a human-human interaction. And we talk about that in the humanism aspects of some of our most recent podcast episodes as well. But we come with predetermined ideas about things, and it does shape the way we deliver care. That's been talked about. We also have to realize that science and knowledge is evolving so fast that it's not a flat playing field. Not everybody is getting the same information. Even despite all the ways to do this through the internet and electronic formats, people are not always staying current. I find that in policy statements and protocols that somebody says, I didn't realize that was out there. I've seen that during the pandemic when people have said, You know, I didn't realize that's how we were screening for COVID or getting back to sports activities and stuff. Like, when you mean you didn't know, that was in the, you know, been written about over a year now. What have you been using? And I'm not talking about somebody from, you know, some isolated place. You're talking town to town, school to school differences. You see differences in care. Uh, The way that care standards are inconsistent is often due to the fact that they may not have these policies there or they're not enforcing them, even though they exist. So what good is it if you have a stop sign if everybody runs right through it? 
What good is it if you have a policy or protocol and nobody is actually following it or trying to follow it and put it in place? It's actually harder to put things in place than it is to write them and make them actually happen. And there are multiple levels at which we get access to healthcare that also influence the differences, whether it's through a private physician, a community-based clinic, an academic medical center, the urgent care or emergency room, a hospital versus a clinic, rural settings versus urban settings, academic versus community hospitals and settings like that are also all causing changes in the way that care is delivered in our country. These are just factors. I'm not looking for solutions at this moment, but so showing you some of the things that are affecting the way that healthcare is not being consistently delivered. Education as well. Let's, let's call a spade a spade. Not all medical education is the same. It could be, we should strive for that, but there are a lot of new schools coming up and some of them I'm seeing are really evolving really well and bringing a lot of good things to the table. But with this rapid growth in order to meet the medical needs, we also have to question whether or not the standards are being kept up and consistent across the board through all institutions. I just think they need more support to make that so. And I am seeing differences in terms of where people are educated. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in solutions. Resources, not every state has the same resources, different policies, rules, and regulations. For example, nurse practitioners may be able to see people completely independently in one state and work without a physician, and in other states, they cannot. Does that change the way healthcare is delivered? Perhaps it does. I'm not saying better or worse. It may change it. Think about the case of my patient who was told they don't do that operation when she was looking for her child who had the small left heart. In the story I told you about, well, that's because some places don't do that operation. Well, maybe they shouldn't all be doing that operation, but if you don't do that operation, it doesn't mean it can't be done somewhere. So why are there such differences and why was that mother having to kind of shop around before she had her baby to find a place that could tell her, yes, we can do that operation. Why wasn't everything laid out on the table in one place? Why were there differences? And also the economics. Perhaps how we fund healthcare, and we've talked about this in many ways, and I've mentioned this on some of my reels and other things on Instagram, which is the idea that what promotes competition in between institutions, between hospitals, between practices, is the fact that we're doing a fee-for-service type system, where it's a volume-driven system, and everybody's trying to work to try to capture that patient population, as they say, working in silos instead of working together. And some people are really saying now that value, talking about value versus volume, may be a better way to think about how we finance things because it is creating these differences in healthcare as we compete with each other instead of work together. And the consequences of these disparities are quite extreme. Uh, they're extreme inefficiencies in the amount of resources we use, personal and hard assets, uh, costs, we talk about administrative costs being extremely high because of these inefficiencies, and uh, things such as multiple unnecessary visits, travel, time off, state and federal uh, institutions have to cover these costs. In fact, they total as much as $93 billion a year in excess costs due to disparities. Think about that. The fact that there are such differences in care leading to such inefficiencies in the way that we deliver care actually is causing us to spend $93 billion a year more than we should if we had a much more focused and efficient and consistent system. 
Also, when people are not well because they are not getting care the same way, those people are not productive. And that may be costing as much as $42 billion a year. And we're not even talking about people who don't live a full lifetime and therefore can't contribute to the economy because they never lived long enough because they weren't well enough to do so because their health wasn't as good as it could be or as others' health is. These inequities of care access and standards are literally causing people to die because of the differences. This is not a subtle point. This is serious that we are watching people die who don't need to die because they cannot have the same level of health as someone perhaps not even too far away. Also, this is creating a lot of frustration for the providers, and we've seen that in the clinical burnout. We've talked about that in some of our podcasts. But if we burn out our physicians because they are frustrated in not being able to provide the care, the best care they can, as they've been trained to do because of some of the things that are stopping them and creating these disparities, that creates frustration. Think about the pandemic and all the people that people saw die in areas where people were socioeconomically and racially different enough to have less care and access to care and therefore suffer more and die more from COVID-19. You can't keep watching that and not become depressed. And that will lead to burnout of clinicians, which is going to cost us even more in terms of resources and worsen our quality of care even further. So the point really is that overall, our health outcomes are nowhere near as good as they should be given the resources a rich nation such as ours has. And if we can tighten up the things that are causing these differences, these disparities that I see almost every day and that people are writing about more and more, then perhaps our resources could be better funneled to improve our care and raise us to the level that we as a people deserve. The solutions to achieving healthcare equity um, are very complicated and they're not going to happen overnight. But we do have to begin eliminating health and healthcare disparities. Uh, one of the ideas that came back out uh, in 2006 in a book by Porter and Teisberg from Harvard, actually their book called Redefining Healthcare, and I'll quote from this, uh, they say, we must replace today's fragmented system in which every local provider offers a full range of services with a system in which services for particular medical conditions are concentrated in health delivery organizations and in the right locations to deliver high-value care. Think about what that says in terms of the patients I mentioned. If we have every institution, pediatric institution, with heart surgery saying, I want to have a heart surgery program, can we really do that and do it well? If we spread it out too far, what you'll find is not everybody does a good job and that mother is walking around, people saying, well, we really can't do that very well, so you should probably not have that baby. Meanwhile, doesn't it make more sense to concentrate all the best surgeons and all the best resources and the people that help those surgeons and their team at a handful of centers so it's done well? Well, we know that's true. People talk about that all the time within our field, but it's not happening. And the question is, why? Because everybody wants to have their own sort of system, their own showcase to say, look, we can do this too. But does that really make sense? Does it really create a, a playing field that gives the best care access to everyone? Look at that patient and it doesn't sound like it. She had to fight in order to have a place where that surgery could be done well. So 
Well, some of the other solutions um, that I would like to suggest and finish with is, most importantly, perhaps, we need to bring back the primary care physician into this picture. We've talked about this for years, but we need to really create a strong, well-trained general physician team who's empowered by the system and involved in the patient. They know the patients best when you do that. And really, everything should go through them. That boy who collapsed on the field and did not survive, really, he should have his evaluation in terms of his health, whether he can play and do sports and what risks he has, done through his primary doctor who knows him best. When we water it down and try to do this as a commodity and a service, and we realize we don't know everything about that patient, the risks go up. Health is better when somebody knows the patient and knows them well. And we talk about this a lot, but we need to put it back in the primary care physician's hands. In fact, the guidelines for getting back, the American Academy and American Heart Association guidelines for clearing patients and kids to participate in activities are for the first time this year in the past year's uh, uh, form of this protocol and policy is saying, get the primary physician involved and engaged. They're finally putting that in writing. This is not something that everybody can do. This is not a service that can be done at necessarily every uh, urgent care or quick check, so to speak. This is something that needs to be done thoughtfully so that we don't lose people like that young man. We also need to educate the community uh, to have uh, more of a focus on having their own primary physician as a frontline person, not to use the emergency rooms or urgent cares you know, as, as a quick way in and out, because that's not necessarily giving them the best care. Focusing on getting a primary care physician who they trust and know. We need to pick the user, so to speak, the patients themselves to say that's what they expect and demand is to have a good primary care physician, put them back in. Also, a lot of our guests have talked about a team approach using all levels of the healthcare system, social workers, child life, counselors, uh, uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, a specialist occasionally, but really the primary physicians, and create a team that is focused on the patient, and more importantly, bring that patient into the team and make them a member of that team. I think that can improve healthcare disparities. A lot of people are talking about this and writing about this. It seems like common sense to me. And we need a concerted effort to create more universal standards of care and ensure access to care. What I mean by that is we've got to really work at it. It's not something that can happen overnight. There's a lot of tug of wars uh, taking us away from having universal standards. Everybody wants their own little showcase, but that's not necessarily the best thing. We have to change the culture the way we think. This is going to be hard. It's going to take time, but it will improve disparities. And technology can help here. It doesn't always have to be a hindrance. Telehealth, for example, can really level the playing fields for getting access to care to people who can't get to that specialist, they can begin at least the dialogue and talk to them. And technology is going to make even tests and things more done remote uh, at their homes, away from the physician, but still get the knowledge from the physician to help improve the care. Also, the way we educate. Uh, teleeducation has come up in primary schools and colleges, but also in medical schools. If we want to level the playing field for physicians and teach them all the same, why not get a curriculum program where we have partnerships between 
universities and education so that the best teachers in medical education can teach all physicians, new schools, old schools, all together. People are looking at these ideas. I'm not, this is not new, not something only I'm thinking about, but I think it could improve the education format, which is the foundation for how healthcare ultimately can be delivered. And we need to get the public actively involved in this process. To me, that's the whole push of the podcast. Get the public to be engaged in their own health care so that they say, this is what we need, this is what we demand, and this is what we could use to improve our health so that we're not just delivering care that really doesn't meet or match what is necessary in any given community. And we need to also think about narrowing healthcare disparities as a way to improve not only the economics, but the overall health of our society. When we have a lot of waste, we waste human resources. We talked about losses of lives and productivity, and it's not financially valuable as well. The argument goes as follows. We can't afford to just give health care to everyone. How are we going to pay for all of this? Well, that's what people keep saying. But my answer is the money's there. We're just wasting it. We need to put it back in the other column. We are already all paying for this, I would say literally throwing money out the window because of healthcare disparities. By making a healthier, more productive and efficient population and focusing on what patients really need, we may even spend much less money than we are doing now. We have to give it a try. And ultimately, I think the real thing we have to ask as a society, and something I'm really adamant about, is to ask what are our values as a society? Do we care enough to create equity versus disparity? Is this something that is a goal, a shared goal of us as a people and society? If so, let's focus on it. Let's agree on it and make it happen. Let's not go through another pandemic and bring out all the issues that were lying there dormant for years. Let's use this as a moment, as a calling, a shot by the bow to say, okay, no more. We're going to improve this because working on this can save so many lives, create a much better healthcare system, and make us a healthier and happier people. I think it's worth a try. A lot of people are focusing on it now. You'll hear about it in a lot of the policy discussions. I thought it was important to bring this up. And in our future podcast, we will be diving deeper into these issues, the causes, the manifestations, how what they lead to, and together, how we can solve these. So I look forward to your feedback on this discussion. I thought it was important. It is something that people are bringing up, all the different causes of this. We as a society, looking at what it is about us that is creating these disparities, everything from racism racism to gender issues and concerns and all the pettiness that really shouldn't be part of who we are as a nation, I think. And we've talked about how we can do this as people together. I look forward to have this dialogue with you. Look open to your feedback, and you can reach us at Dr. Fetke, M-D, uh, that's D-R-F-E-T-H-K-E-M-D, on Facebook and Instagram, and on our website, drfetkemd.com. And until next time, when we have many of our guests talking about this and many more topics, this is Dr. Eric Fetke. I'm your host here at the Pursuit of Health podcast, wishing you well in all your pursuits. <laughs>